Fawny Willis admits to having a relationship, but she denies misconduct. From NPR, this is Trump's Trials. I'm Miles Parks. Scott Detrow is on assignment. This is a persecution. He actually just stormed out of the courtroom. Innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. It has been a busy week in the world of Trump's trials. First, after weeks of silence, Fulton County District Attorney Fawny Willis filed a 176-page motion in which she admitted to having a relationship with Prosecutor Nathan Wade. Wade is leading Georgia's election interference case against former President Donald Trump and more than a dozen other defendants. In the motion, Willis says there's no truth to the claims being made by one of Trump's co-defendants that she had benefited financially from the relationship with Wade. We're also looking ahead to the Supreme Court. On Thursday, February 8th, the court will hear oral arguments in the Colorado ballot case, which could decide whether Trump can even run for president at all. The court took up the case after Colorado's Supreme Court disqualified Trump from being on the primary ballot because of his actions during the January 6th insurrection. A clause in the Constitution specifically bars insurrectionists from holding public office. So lots to discuss there. And as always, I'm joined by my colleague, senior editor and political correspondent, Domenico Montanaro. Hey, Domenico. Hey, Miles. So catch me up in the big moments from this week in Trump's trials. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. You know, it's hard not to see this case uh, in Georgia through a political lens. You know, it centers around Trump asking Georgia officials to find him more than 11,000 votes in 2020, you might remember. I do remember you know, the- <laughs> very, very, very well. You know, and this was seen as one of the strongest criminal cases against Trump because, remember, it's all on tape. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes which is one more that we have. Now, instead, everyone is talking about Fonnie Willis and her personal life. You know, for Willis, she sees the surfacing of these allegations as not much more than politics and said so in the opening paragraph of her motion. Here's what she wrote. While the allegations raised in the various motions are salacious and garnered the media attention they were designed to obtain, none provide this court with any basis upon which to order the relief they seek. And what is the relief they seek? To have the case or Willis herself dismissed, but they certainly have muddied and likely delayed the case and have raised a lot of questions about Willis's ethics, all of which benefits Trump. Lots of legal issues and political issues discussed with the Georgia case and the one before the Supreme Court. And we'll get back to all of that with constitutional law expert Kim Whaley of the University of Baltimore when we come right back. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. On, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. 
And we're joined now by Kim Whaley. She's a constitutional expert and law professor at the University of Baltimore. Hi, Kim. Hi there. Thanks for being here. It's a big week with lots to discuss. And I think we should start with the Fonnie Willis filing, this 176-page long document. What did you make of it? What, what did we learn here? Well, what I made of it is that there's a lot of resources now uh, going to this sideshow that's very unfortunate. When I say resources, there were lawyers that spent a lot of time filing this opposition brief about this relationship, appearance of a conflict of interest uh, between her and this prosecutor that she admits now in the filing she had an intimate relationship with. Um, Two new facts. One is that she didn't have it apparently at the time he hired her and some of the trips and things she paid for herself. Legally, they make a strong argument that this isn't a conflict of interest that would disqualify her. Um, Usually it has to be much stronger. So it's not, I think, a basis for her to be disqualified, um, but it's damaging, you know, from the public's perspective. It's just an appearance of a lack of judgment, frankly. And once again, we're seeing in one of these cases, you know, a process that's just delaying things potentially. And that uh, for Donald Trump, um, who's a defendant, obviously, in this case, as well as January 6th and, and two others, delay is his best friend. Delay is his best defense on the merits and the facts. Right. Domenico, I mean, every time we talk about anything uh, on this podcast, there's always the legal ramifications and the political ramifications, right? And so do we have any sense of what the political impact so far has been of um, what Willis disclosed yesterday? Yeah, and to just pick up on some of what Kim was saying, I mean, the fact is a lot of politics is about character, and part of what you want to do is um, disqualify somebody else's character to say that you know they aren't running something that's above board. And if Trump can do that to muddy the waters, he can try to continue to make his case that you know he's being uh, politically pursued, um, and that this is just you know, in his words, a witch hunt. This was or is one of the strongest cases against Trump. I mean, remember he's on tape, like we heard, you know, trying to overturn the results of an election that he lost. So the fact that we're even discussing the nitty-gritty details of this personal relationship between Willis and uh, Nathan Wade is the very kind of distraction meant to muddy the waters that Trump wants. You know, it could mean another delay where we potentially, you know, don't see a verdict before the election, which by the way, lots of polls have shown that a conviction could make a difference with voters. Well, and it's not going away, right? I mean, I think that was one of my takeaways from this week is we started seeing the snowball start to build because at the Georgia state level and then also Congress, um, the House Judiciary Committee says they're going to subpoena her for a separate campaign finance matter. So there is this sense that Republicans at the state level and nationally are seizing on this. What do you think her future is long term? I mean, is it tenable for her to stay on this, Kim? Well, there are two options. One is the judge takes her off which I think on the law, as indicated, is unlikely. Or she could resign. Uh, That would be option number two. Either way, it wouldn't make the case against Donald Trump go away, but it it could delay it well past the election and create this impression, as we've been talking about, of corruption. The thing to keep in mind on the law as well, though, is that even if he wins the election in November uh, legitimately and takes office in January— His ability to call off this prosecution, as well as the Alvin Bragg one in Manhattan, does not exist. Um, Mm. With the federal claims, he can cancel them, right? He'll be in charge of the Justice Department. He does not have that power 
with the Georgia case. He does not have that power with the Manhattan trial, which probably will go before November. So even if she gets pulled off for one reason or another and he's in wins the presidency, Georgia could still be prosecuting a sitting president. What do you think, Domenico? Do you think it's politically tenable for her to stay on? No, I mean, some are arguing that she should step aside and take leave because in Georgia, if a DA is disqualified, then their entire staff is disqualified and could bring the entire case to a halt. You know, if she were to step aside, that wouldn't happen. It could continue under someone on her staff, you know, in theory. Um, so she's taken a bit of a risk sticking with this case. And even if she's disqualified and someone else is appointed by this panel that Kim was talking about, you know, would they prosecute it to the same extent? Would they have the same, you know, uh, attempts at going after Trump or or the strength or length of sentences that they would be seeking? It's a it's a big question, you know, and Willis and Wade, by the way, don't show any signs of this point of stepping aside. You know, that's what this filing really was about. And I have to say they argued in the filing, just to make things even messier, that there are personal relationships going on on the other side among lawyers for some of the co-defendants who might actually testify against each other on the Trump side of things. And as one of our colleagues said, this is like all turning into the Grey's Anatomy of the legal That's world. what I was going to say. It's like so clearly in 10 years going to be made into like a daytime uh, television show. It's it like it's clearly writing itself. But I do want to turn to the other big um, story in Trump trial world, which is the Colorado ballot case. We're going to hear arguments in the Supreme Court on Thursday about whether Trump can be disqualified for his actions related to January 6th, essentially um, potentially getting answers to this big question we've been talking about for three years is, is Donald Trump considered an insurrectionist? Kim, can you briefly lay out the case um, and explain how the 14th Amendment plays into this? Sure. So the 14th Amendment itself was ratified after the Civil War, and it has a section in it Uh, That says, and I'm paraphrasing, if you took an oath to uphold the Constitution and you engaged in an insurrection or rebellion, you cannot hold office again. So the framers of the, the 14th Amendment here were worried about people that were part of the Confederacy from making their way into the reconstructed government and throwing bombs and basically disallowing the reunification of the nation. And the argument being made across the country in various states is that, and there are three main provisions in Section 3, that if you're, in this case, an officer of the United States and you engaged in an insurrection, that you're disqualified. So the argument is presidents are officers of the United States, that January 6th was an insurrection, and that Donald Trump engaged in it. So therefore, he cannot hold office. There are some technical arguments based on these three words. The argument is, oh, well, if you actually look at the provision, it doesn't spell out specifically that presidents are officers of the United States, so they're they're not covered by Section 3. Um, there's an argument that, well, they really meant the Civil War, even though they didn't say the Civil War, and so maybe we're not in insurrection land with January 6th, and that Donald Trump's lawyers are making the argument that he didn't engage because he stayed in the sidelines. He didn't actually join the hand-to-hand combat at the Capitol. Those are the three issues. The Colorado Supreme Court held that he did all those things. He's an officer. He engaged in insurrection. In Maine, the Secretary of State determined the same thing. And the thing to keep in mind here, there's another part of the Constitution, section uh, of the 14th Amendment, Section 5, that says Congress can 
pass a law that allows you to go and challenge his eligibility across the country. And so another argument is that the only way to get Section 3 litigated is if Congress steps in. I mean, I frankly don't think any of these are good arguments legally, and we can talk about it. There's a perception in the public that somehow this is this is going to t- deprive people of their votes um, and that this is somehow anti-democratic. But, you know, there are lots of qualifications to get on presidential ballots on a state-by-state basis, and no one's holding that unconstitutional. So in my mind, again, this is a bit of a sideshow that gets us off the ball, but it's a huge, huge issue. And the Supreme Court now is going to step in on all this stuff. Which of the arguments, Domenico, do you feel like is the strongest? I mean, do you think there's one that that they're going to be focusing on the most? Well, I don't know about what's strongest or not, but I do know a little bit about how John Roberts thinks about the court, mm. the chief uh, justice of the court. Which is and pretty he important, really, yeah. He really doesn't like getting involved in politics. He doesn't want the court to appear to be political, despite the fact that the court has to decide things that, you know, shape so, uh, social policy for a generation that are inherently political. But if he can figure out a way to weave a, a, a needle and sort of like thread this line where they can sort of dismiss this on a technicality and not have to weigh in on the insurrection piece, that's where I think that they're most likely to kind of go. And and when we're talking about that, we're talking about this argument that a president of the United States is not an officer, quote unquote. And there's some argument that there's a bit of precedent to say what an officer is and that an officer is not the president of the United States as you know, much as that doesn't seem to make sense you know, into a normal argument that like, obviously the president is the chief executive officer of the country, which is also noted in some places. But the fact that a lot of people will say uh, that the officer really is just about um, people who are appointed in the federal government. When it does seem like a big deal, Kim, and tell me if I'm thinking about this correctly, but Donald Trump was impeached uh, for his role in and then acquitted by Congress um, after January 6th. Is that going to play a big role in how the Supreme Court views whether uh, Donald Trump is an insurrectionist? Well, that's another argument that you put your finger on that that the Trump team is making. Uh, and it's, a again, a, all these arguments are really technical nuances that they're very lawyerly, right? So to Domenico's point on officer – you know, the Constitution multiple times in other places equates presidents with office and officers. So these are very technical arguments. And Donald Trump's making the argument that if you read the language of the impeachment clause in Article 2, which goes on to say that you can still be basically held criminally accountable, notwithstanding impeachment, he's saying that that means that you have to be convicted of impeachment before you can even be criminally prosecuted. I think based on the plain reading of the of that text, I think it's wrong. Um, but these are kind of like the lawyerly gymnastics that are happening that, uh, as as Domenico mentioned, there are a bunch of various off-ramps that the, the court could take. I think the best one would have been not to take the case at all, which it didn't have to. Um, I do want to make a point on the argument, which is really kind of circulating that there needs to be a criminal conviction. And it's absolutely one of the arguments that people are making. There's a difference, you know, when it comes to something like this, so people understand between, you know, why you would need due process and proof beyond a reasonable doubt in a criminal context. That's because when people are going to trial on a, on a criminal charge, they could lose their liberty. They could go to prison, right? And that's what's happening with Donald Trump. Here we're talking about not being able to basically apply for a job. So mm-hmm. I don't think that's you know, it makes logical the bar sense. Is lower, basically, essentially. Yeah, and you get lower process, and he did. He got a trial before a judge in Colorado. 
So the penalty here, it doesn't require, in my mind, a and even under due process law, a proof beyond a reasonable doubt. But it does make people just feel uncomfortable with this idea. It makes people queasy. And I do think that the, the way you put it, makes people queasy, is something I've heard a lot over the last year or two. I cover voting, and I talk to a lot of democracy experts who many of them say, yes, I believe Donald Trump um, engaged in insurrection, and I simultaneously think he should be allowed on the ballot just because the danger to the country that would that could, could potentially follow from not allowing a candidate who clearly has, if not majority support, at least in the first couple primary states, we're seeing he has a broad base of support within one of the two major parties in the country. Not allowing that person to run for office potentially could lead to some sort of civil unrest. What do you make of that, Domenico? If the Supreme Court did decide that, yeah, it's it's he did engage in insurrection and he can be held off the ballot, is it hyperbole? to see this ending in political violence or unrest, or what do you make of that? Well, uh, it's not like it's ever happened before. (laughs) We saw January 6th, you know, was a thing that happened in 2021, not that long ago, because Trump convinced a lot of people that he was wrongfully... That the election was taken from him, essentially, yeah. Trump obviously was able to say that he felt like the election was taken away from him, was stolen, which is not true. It went to court, you know, 60 plus times, and his team lost almost every single time there. But he was able to convince a lot of his followers that that was the case and certainly potentially spur some people to, you know, violence to action on this. And, you know, we've seen that, you know, in polling uh, that about a third of Republicans say that, you know, violence as a means to save the country might be necessary. Uh, compare that to much lower numbers of independents and Democrats. And, you know, that's a scary place for the country to be in where you could be at the brink of violence on a lot of these things. But I'm not 100% sure that, like, just because that's possible, that you then don't do what's right under the law. I couldn't agree more. Plus, I mean, if Joe Biden wins um, in November, legitimately, again, it, it, I think it's fair to anticipate violence again, right? Because mm. these people believe the last election was stolen from him. The argument that we want to evade violence, I think, is almost supports why he should be kept off the ballot. That is, this is a this is a person that stokes violence and stoked lies and has made some very disturbing comments about, you know, basically suspending the Constitution, you know, prosecuting his political enemies using the Department of Justice, um, you know, dismissing the civil service and putting loyalists in place. I mean, Donald Trump, you know, he says what he's going to do and he does it. And I think this kind of person in the White House is exactly what the framers of Section 4 were worried about. I mean, they want to, to keep the country as a nation. Uh, and so, as somebody who thinks a lot about democracy, I understand the argument that it's anti-democratic, but there are other requirements to be on the ballot. And I would argue this is one of them. You just add it to the list. Um, But the stakes at the end of the day couldn't be really higher when you think about what we're talking about, Donald Trump a second term and whether democracy will survive. One thing is for sure, it will be a divided decision. There will not be a unanimous, I think, 9-0 vote one way or the other. We're going to see multiple lengthy opinions with different points of view because this is not a black and white question. Okay, well, we can leave it there for now. We'll obviously be watching Thursday's oral arguments and talking about them on next weekend's show. Kim Whaley of the University of Baltimore, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a great conversation. And Domenico Montanaro, thank you again for joining us as always. You got it. 
And thanks to our supporters who hear this show sponsor-free. If that's not you, it could be. Sign up at plus.npr.org or subscribe on our show page in Apple Podcasts. This show is produced by Tyler Bartlam and edited by Adam Rainey and Steve Drummond. Our executive producers are Beth Donovan and Sammy Yenigan. Eric Maripodi is NPR's vice president of news programming. I'm Miles Parks. Thanks for listening to Trump's Trials from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Betterment. The emotional build of a will-they-won't-they-love story is never chill, but your investing portfolio should be. Betterment is the investing app that lets you be totally chill about your finances. Their automated technology and tax-smart tools are easy to set up, so you can focus on navigating any will-they-won't-they-love stories that come your way. Betterment. Be invested and totally chill. Learn more at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. The Embedded Podcast brings you eye-opening reporting. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Immersive journalism. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Personal stories. I was scared. Like, I can't protect you. We are NPR's home for documentary storytelling. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts.